so many things happening in the world today, it's just astounding. From that train derailment in Ohio and all of the toxic chemicals spilled and burned off and creating more toxic chemicals in the air, to balloons flying over our country and we don't know what they've been up to and we're not getting very good answers from the people that know or should know all the way to a small town, I mean a really small town in Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky, on the campus of Asbury University, where something is happening that God is doing in the lives of young men and women and older men and women as well. There is a lot going on in our world, and we can't talk about all of it, but we're going to get to some of it today on the program. And all of that reminds us that this is a day and age where we need to have faith. And you are listening to Faith Is, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And certainly in the face of the mysterious train derailments that are going on around the country, especially the one in Ohio, especially when we see balloons flying over our country up to who knows what, and especially when we see God moving into a small town, to a small university, a big God giving birth to big things in the hearts of his people. We want to have faith in him, and we want to trust him. And I'm so glad you've joined us today. We're going to have a little perspective on that and more, but we're going to start with the Bible. You know, when times are difficult, when questions arise, when we're trying to make sense out of things, it's always good to go to the Bible to get guidance and wisdom and to gain courage and to develop faith, confidence in God. And so we want to start there today with a rather unusual story from the New Testament. Now, I say unusual because I mean it's really unusual, and for years and years, I thought it was kind of odd. I didn't doubt it. I didn't have any trouble believing that it happened. I just thought it was a little unusual, to say the least. And in many respects it is, until we begin to unpack it, and then we begin to realize that it's not quite as unusual as we think. And I don't want to get off too far on a, on a sidetrack here, but I think this is worth us thinking about. You know, there are many things in the Bible that we puzzle over, we wonder about. There are mysteries in the Bible, and, and we don't ever expect to fully grasp everything. I'm often reminded of, of what I heard years ago, and I don't know who said it or I'd give them credit. But they said they don't want a God that's small enough for their understanding. They want a God that's big enough for their needs. And really, I don't ever expect that we can contain God within our understanding. That would be kind of ridiculous. That would be a foolish aspiration. I do believe God has revealed himself to us, and he wants us to understand him, and he wants us to wrestle with some of these things so that we can get to deeper and better understandings. But there are just some unusual things in the Bible. However, the more I remind myself, the more I begin to make connections between one thing that happened here in the Bible and one thing that happened there in the Bible, I began to see that it makes some coherent sense that I didn't realize before. And so it is with this story. And I'm talking today about the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, we've been following the life of Jesus. We do it at our church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We tell the story of Jesus. We start way back at Advent. Seems like a long time ago. It hadn't been that long ago. But 
We begin with the anticipation of Jesus' birth and the reminder that he's going to come back again, and that's very good news. Both his coming and the celebration of his coming long ago in Bethlehem and the anticipation of his coming again at the end of the time and what we sometimes call the Day of the Lord. And then we celebrated not only the anticipation but the arrival. He really was born. The wise men came. They fled to Egypt. The story of Jesus begins to unfold step by step, day by day. And then very quickly we got into the teachings of Jesus and we've been looking at some of those. Last week we talked some more about the Sermon on the Mount. And now this week we take up this rather unusual story, the transfiguration of Jesus. Well, that's a fancy name, and it's appropriate for us to know that because that's that's what people call it. That's the, the title of the event. It really refers to that Jesus' appearance was changed, and the people that were there to witness it saw that change, and so that's where we get the idea of a transfiguration. His appearance was, was strikingly changed. And we kind of wonder, what in the world is going on? Why does that take place? How do you make sense of that? It's also very interesting that Jesus told them not to tell anyone what had happened until after he rose from the dead. Well, that's quite an interesting statement. Uh, They were still trying to wrap their minds around the idea that he was going to die. He had been telling them that. And he told them just before this story as it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But let's take a look at the transfiguration. And it gives us a very good glimpse into the life of Jesus and what God is up to. And it also reminds us something about living in the presence of God. And of course, that that has never been more, more top of mind, shall we say, than in these days with the events that are taking place there in Willsmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. So let's get to it. The Transfiguration of Jesus from Matthew 17. We're going to start start reading with verse 1. Just going to read a few verses down through verse 9. And then we're going to unpack those a little bit so we can understand them. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. The story is pretty straightforward in most English translations that I've seen. But if you're trying to follow along, it won't match yours unless yours is the same one I'm reading from. Well, now that, Pastor Rick, is an obvious statement. Yes, it is. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. Or actually, I read that wrong. I'm so used to it saying it in different ways in different English translations. This one says, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him, I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. 
As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Quite an interesting story. Quite an interesting turn of events here. And quite fascinating that that this was included. I mean, you sometimes might even wonder, maybe you wonder that. I think about this sometimes. I think it's a good thought exercise. It's not a reason for doubt, but it's a reason for contemplation. Why would a story like this be included in the gospel? What was so significant about this that was so important that we should know about it? Well, I'm not sure we know all of that perspective at this point, but it certainly was significant to Peter, James, and John, and it sure catches our attention because we say, what in the world is up here? So it says at the outset that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They went up a high mountain. Well, the six days may be an allusion to the Exodus story when God spoke to Moses up on a mountain from a cloud for six days. Now, it's not exactly replicated that way here, but it seems interesting that the writer includes this idea of six days. I mean, we can often wonder why the Bible excludes certain information we'd like to know, but maybe it's more helpful for us to think about the things that it does include, like the story wouldn't be much different if we didn't have the information that it was six days. So, you know, first when I looked at that, I thought, well, maybe that's not that significant. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, if they included it, there must be something. And, and this allusion, this connection to Moses speaking to God should not be overlooked. Now, Jesus here took the initiative to take Peter, James, and John up the mountain. And it calls it a high mountain. Well, that also has a connection to the Moses story, because Moses up, went up, climbed up, walked up, however he got up. He went up Mount Sinai to meet with God. It was a significant thing. And so there, right away in that few words, that the four of them, Jesus and the other three guys, they went up in much the same fashion as Moses did. And this was a great privilege for them, because what they were about to see, no one else saw. And what they were about to see, no one else heard about, because Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone until after I have risen from the dead. So they get up there, and the story is told rather quickly. It's not like it takes a long time to tell this story. It's just a very straightforward, um, action-emphasized story in the way that it's told. And no sooner do they get up the mountain, as, as Matthew tells the story, Jesus is changed before them, transfigured before them. And it says he's transfigured, and then it goes on to explain what that means. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Now, that's a very interesting way of describing that, because his face was shiny. And, and we know from the Exodus account that when Moses was with God and came down, his countenance was so bright, people couldn't look at it. He had to, had to wear a veil to protect them, so, because they couldn't, they, it was just too bright. They couldn't look at him. And we don't know about his clothes, but here Jesus' clothes are as bright as light. It, it almost seems to, to, to get us, give us the idea that, that they were glowing. Now, I don't know if they were. It doesn't say they were glowing, but the way he describes it, it's as though they were emitting light that, in, a, in a way that was quite unusual because it says bright as light. And I wouldn't make too much of that except that it, 
helps us use our imagination as to what Jesus looked like. His face shone like the sun. Try to look at the sun for an extended... No, don't try to look at the sun for an extended period of time. It might hurt your eyes, but you get the idea. That's the description. Like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Light comes from the sun. And then all at once, all at once, some other guys were there. And it describes them as Moses and Elijah. Now that's quite an interesting turn of events. Those guys hadn't been around for a while. Now why would they show up? Well, it's a good question and we don't really know. We do know that what's going on here is a sneak peek at the glory of Jesus, the, the glory that will come one day. We uh, have some idea that Moses and Elijah made connections in the minds of the people of that day that might point to the end of time or other things that would have happened. But all of a sudden, there they are, and it's probable, likely, and again, we, we don't have explicit information on all of this, but it's fairly likely that Moses represents the prophets and the prophets of old, and Elijah, maybe he represents the, the prophets that point to the end of times. Those are indications. We also know from the Old Testament story that that Moses went up to the mountain and, and went to be with God. And there's a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether he actually died or just walked up the mountain into God's presence. Same way with Elijah. You remember, a chariot came down and swept him away while Elisha watched. And so those would have been important connections for people in those days because they were closer to that and they paid attention to that and they're important connections for us. Now, now, time out. Don't miss this. I guess I sometimes feel like a broken record because I've been known to mention this a lot these days. But notice that we're referring and trying to understand this story. We're referring a lot to what? The Hebrew Scriptures or what we call, yes, what we call the Old Testament. Now, it's been a terrible disappointment to me, really a shock even, to hear some Christian leaders and pastors these days talk about how the Old Testament really isn't that important, and we really should not be focusing on it. We should focus on the New Testament. Uh, well, you know, we wouldn't really understand this, what's going on here even as well as we do without taking a look at the Old Testament because the connections are clear between the Sinai experience of Moses and this experience of Jesus and Moses and Elisha or Elijah, excuse me, and the three guys, Peter, James, and John. So there's definitely need for us to understand and value what we call the Old Testament or what sometimes people refer to as the Hebrew Scriptures. Don't ever let anyone talk you out of that. It matters. It matters big time. We see it over and over and over and over, and we should not, we should not let go of that. It really connects the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah and the other prophets, the law, to the New Testament. Now, to be sure, Jesus is far more important than Moses and Elijah or any of the other Old Testament prophets. We understand that. We're not questioning that. We never questioned that. We never doubted that. But just because Jesus is transcendently more important doesn't mean that the scriptures then 
are therefore not important. Just very, very necessary to make that correction. So here they are. They're up there. Jesus has changed. And uh, suddenly Moses and Elijah are there, and they're talking, talking with Jesus. Now, I've sometimes wondered, what were they talking about? And, and nobody knows, as far as I've ever been able to tell. Nobody knows what they were talking about. It's not recorded here. But they were talking with Jesus. And, and uh, I, that's just so interesting that here are these mighty prophets of old, Moses and Elijah, and Jesus just having a conversation like they, they know each other well and they're just sharing life together or something like that. I don't know, but here they are talking. Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus while Peter, James, and John look on. I don't know how they felt. I can imagine from what we read in the text, but what an amazing, what an amazing thing. And so Peter, taking it all in, Peter speaks up and says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we wonder, what is he talking about? Well, of course it was good for them to be there. They could tell that, that it was good to be in God's presence. They could tell that something extraordinary happened. It was obvious. And, and to be there, that was a privilege. And Jesus selected them on purpose for that privilege. So, yes, it's understandable that Peter would say, it's good for us to be here. Now, the idea of um, a tent for each one of them, I, I don't know what that is, and people aren't quite sure. There's the suggestion that maybe it had something to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, although there's nothing in the text to connect it to that. And so that's probably not what's going on here. It's kind of an intriguing idea, but no, probably not. Maybe it was Peter simply trying to do something to express hospitality. We're so glad you're here. Let us make you comfortable. Um, that might be. Don't know that we can prove that. Uh, it might be that that Peter was trying to prolong the experience. Where we have no real certainty of that. I can't give you any real text-based idea that Peter was trying to prolong the experience by by building three tents for them. Certainly, they they would have known how to do that. That wasn't beyond their capability in those days to build build some kind of shelter. And, and don't get hung up on the use of the word tents. It probably didn't mean a canvas tent like we think of. But they could have built a shelter from the materials there on the mountain, I suppose. That's probably what it referred to. I sometimes wonder, and, and again, I this is hard to know what Peter was thinking. I, I think he was probably speaking what the others were thinking. I don't think this was just Peter opening his mouth and unusual things coming out. I think this is probably the common reaction, things along this line, because that's the way the culture worked in those days. I don't know that. But... I've often wondered if Peter was so overcome by the situation, he didn't know what to say, and this is just what came to mind, and out it came. You know, you and I have probably been in situations like that where we didn't know what to say, and, and we found ourselves saying something we were a little surprised to hear ourselves say. Sometimes I wonder if that's Peter. Uh, again, I don't know for sure. It, it's just really kind of, uh, it, it, it makes me think that Peter just, he just didn't quite know what to do and what to say. Um, I don't think, as some people have suggested, that that Peter was putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same level of, 
of honor. That doesn't seem like he would have done that. Uh, it seems at this point that that they would have understood something different about Jesus, but it's just we really don't know because we don't have enough information to know what was going on in Peter's head. Maybe you can ask him someday when you get to heaven. Maybe he'll remember and maybe he'll he'll tell you what was going on. That would be an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? And and by the way, you wonder if that's possible. Well, you know, that's a little bit of what Jesus' appearance with Moses and Elijah hints at, is that one day we'll be able to have those conversations. So maybe that's not too far-fetched. If you get there before I do, maybe you can find out and come and tell me when I show up. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Well, so Peter blurts out whatever he blurts out, for whatever reason he blurts it out, and it says that while he was still speaking, now I kind of like that idea because it's an interruption. Peter is now interrupted. While he's still speaking, he's interrupted by a bright cloud that overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud speaking. So Peter's statement, whatever he was trying to say, he's interrupted by a bright cloud coming overhead and a voice speaking. Now, we do know from, again, the Exodus story, from the story of Moses going up on Sinai, from the story of God leading his people through the wilderness, that a cloud represented the appearance of God, that God was present with his people. God was present with Moses up on the mountain. When the cloud came down over the tabernacle, when the cloud lifted and led them forward, indicating they were supposed to move to a new location, God was with them, moving right along with them, dwelling with them, and leading them in the way they should go. So, again, the Old Testament gives us a clue because God comes in the form of a cloud, or, or at least makes a cloud visible to indicate his presence. And then there's a voice from the cloud. Now, we've heard that voice before. Well, in similar voice, because, um, well, you might remember that that when Jesus was baptized, God identified Jesus as his beloved son. He was well pleased with him. And here he says much the same thing. Jesus is his beloved son. We should listen to him. Well, and we should. Now, this is a, a very interesting expression here. The people who study Greek language and know more about it than I do tell us this is an incomplete sentence. And because of the way it is written, that it portrays an intensity and emotion that doesn't seem obvious to us in English. So, there's something that God really wants us to see here. Certainly, he's pointing out Jesus as being special. Certainly, we get that. That's, that's overwhelmingly abundant uh, all through the gospel. All right, It's not complicated. And yes, we understand that Jesus is, is special, a prophet, a leader in the line of Moses and Elijah, sort of, but more. And it also reminds us that we have much to learn from Jesus. Isn't that interesting? much to learn from Jesus because the voice, the voice of God speaking from the cloud says, listen to him. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's, that's absolutely God saying, do it. And now here are the disciples. And, and if it's true that, 
They didn't quite know how to act because of all that was going on. And if it's true, Peter was just blurting this out because he didn't know what else to say. Then it's culminated in when they hear this voice, <laughs> the disciples fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. They fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Now, falling to the ground in those days in the presence of a high-ranking or divine being was not at all unusual. That's what they did. They would bow down low to the ground before this person. It was a sign of devotion. It was an indication that this person was of higher rank than they were. So that's kind of understandable. But what really gets our attention here, what got my attention, was that it said, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. So it seems like it's more than just recognizing they're in the presence of the divine and, and bowing down before, before God himself. But it says they were overcome by fear. It kind of makes me wonder, and again, I don't, don't know how we prove this, but it's definitely a, a wonder from the text that were they so afraid that they just couldn't stand up, they collapsed because they were afraid and they just lost control of, of the ability to stand. I, I don't know, but I wonder that. Let's think about fear a little bit before we move on from that. Can, you, can we do that? Can, can we think about fear? How many times have we been afraid when we shouldn't be afraid? No reason that we can see in the text that Peter, James, and John should have been afraid. They went up with Jesus at his invitation. They were there with Jesus when Moses and Elijah came. Jesus was there with them when God spoke from the cloud. They had every reason to be confident that with Jesus they were okay. But they were still overcome by fear. Well, I'm not going to be too hard on them for that. I don't think any of us would be. We, that's quite an unusual situation. But what I want to think about is how we handle fear today. Because so many times, it seems to me, people make decisions based on fear. Or they make statements that reflect that they are really living their lives surrounded by, guided by, sometimes I think dominated by fear. And over and over in the Bible, over and over and over again, and you've probably heard people say this so much that you know what I'm about to say, over and over and over and over in the Bible, God tells us not to be afraid. And so here, I'm not picking on Peter, James, and John. I wouldn't begin to. But I do want us to take a lesson and remind ourselves that when we're afraid, we don't act the way we should, and we lose some ability to be the people we should be. And so we need to, to let God take away our fears. We need to pray and ask God to help us have confidence in him so we are not afraid. Yes, I know, there are perilous times. I mentioned the strange occurrence of this chemical spill in Ohio that has not been well explained. And we wonder, and it could cause us to be apprehensive, which is the leading edge of being afraid. I know when we heard about these balloons going over the country, we, me, yeah, we thought about what that means, and yeah, we could be a little fearful of that. 
And those are just two things that are really a long way from most of us. Most of us don't live anywhere close to the chemical spill. Most of us didn't see the balloons. But we still understand the reason for apprehension. And I know that in our lives there are other things that come along that cause us to be afraid. And it seems to me that one of the lessons we need to remind ourselves every time we notice this taking place in the Scripture is that God tells us don't be afraid and we have the evidence of the empty tomb to remind us that even, even death, even our mortal enemy, death, is not a reason to be afraid because Jesus overcame death itself. And because he lives, we will live too. And all of Christian faith rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he did rise. The tomb was and remains empty. And we can, well, I don't know if a pastor is supposed to talk like this, but we can bet our lives on that, can't we? I think you understand what I mean. In fact, we have because we trust him. We've based our lives on that reality. And we don't need to be afraid. So whatever it is, and I have no idea what you might be facing, I have enough to deal with myself, and we don't need to share each other's problems. Uh, but I have every confidence that we don't need to be afraid. God still rules and reigns over everything that we know and don't know, everything we see and don't see. And I'm going to help you, and I hope you will help me not be afraid. Because we can trust him. And we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So in just a minute, we're going to take a break. And if this has kind of caused you to reflect a little bit, take a moment to pray and ask God to take away your fears, because I believe he wants to. And when we come back, we're going to finish up this story and then talk about the Asbury Revival. I'm Pastor Rick. I'm so glad you joined us. We'll be right back. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. 
For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com America out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we challenge each other to stretch in God's direction. We help each other develop that kind of confidence in God so we can trust Him. And picking up where we left off, we left off thinking about fear and being reminded that we don't need to be afraid. Understand why they might have been. We also understand that we are not to be afraid. And in fact, Jesus addressed their fear. And that's where we want to pick up the story. So they've been on the Mount of Transfiguration, we usually call it. Jesus was changed. Moses and Elijah came down to talk with Jesus. God comes along in, in a cloud and speaks to them, telling them who Jesus is and that they should listen to him, that they had much to learn from him. The disciples collapse in fear, and Jesus came and touched them. So as you've thought about in our little break here, as you've thought about this idea of fear, now I want you to take that another step and say, wait a minute, in my fear, Jesus can touch me. And he can help you with that. You do not have to live afraid. He does not want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. Nobody wants you to live a life dominated by fear. We want you to have faith, confidence in God. So think about this. Jesus comes along. By my way of thinking, they collapse in fear. Certainly they fell down. And Jesus reassures them them in two ways. What's he do? Jesus came and touched them. Jesus came and touched them. Now, we obviously are not in the physical presence of Jesus. All right, I get that. But Jesus can touch you today in spite of your fears and help you overcome them. Jesus comes over and he touches them and he says, Get up and do not be afraid. He could have essentially said, I'm here. There's no need to be afraid. And we know that God is with us. As his people, we know God is with us, so we don't need to be afraid. Yes, some circumstances may come along and 
have come along for me, probably have for you, probably will again, that we don't like very much, but we don't need to be afraid because Jesus is with us. And now here, related to that, is the next part. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Kind of a reminder, don't you think, that we need to raise our eyes and keep our eyes on him, on Jesus. Absolutely. And we will, won't we? Because we're going to have confidence in him. Well, the story ends with them coming down the mountain and Jesus saying, don't tell anyone, ordering them, actually. The text says Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, I found it interesting this text uses that word, tell no one about the vision. It certainly was not a vision in the sense that it was something they imagined. It was a real event that took place, but Jesus didn't want them to tell anyone what they had seen. And I don't know why the writer uses that expression, but don't get distracted by that. That's that's not referring to an event that, that was in their imagination. This was still a real event. Well, here they were on the mountain in the presence of Jesus, and we've been watching unfold, some of us, for more than a week now, this spiritual awakening in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. I've been to Wilmore, Kentucky. It's been many years ago. I don't remember much about it at all. I can't place the buildings or anything. If I went back there, I might remember a little bit. But Wilmore and Asbury University in particular has been the site of spiritual awakening from time to time. There are two now that are being talked about, this one currently and the one that took place in 1970. And I remember that a little bit. I was in high school. I don't know if I really remember hearing about the revival that took place, but I certainly heard about it when I went to college a couple years later. People were still talking about it and amazed by it. It's also interesting that it um, is credited with beginning what became known as the Jesus Movement, much of which, which took place in California, but did spread across the, the uh, country. I, I remember seeing some things and even going to a concert or two related to the Jesus Movement in those days. And a lot of people are wondering, what's going on here in Wilmore? What's going on at Asbury? Is it real? What's really happening there? Well, I don't have any inside information. I don't have any special revelation, but I have paid attention. I have tried to see what wiser people than I are saying, what people who have had more experience with this kind of thing, people who have studied spiritual awakenings and revivals over time, people who have been present there and what kind of testimony they're giving to what God is doing. And frankly, I am impressed. I'm impressed with everything I hear about what's going on, and I have no doubt that God is genuinely touching people there in Asbury, or at Asbury, there in Wilmore, and across the country. It seems that there are reports that are beginning to take place, that um, we're beginning to hear anyway, that the revival is spreading to other places. I, I really don't know how that's all going to happen. It's much too soon. Yes, some people are saying this is a revival. Other people are saying, well, we don't know if it's exactly a revival based on certain definitions of revival. Maybe it's just a spiritual awakening. You, you can call it what you like. Something's happening and God is up to something. Now, I began to think about this because I knew we were going to talk about this 
story from Matthew of the transfiguration and people being in the presence of God. And again, there are some parallels to what's happened at Asbury University and what happened here in the story of the transfiguration. Some things that I found very interesting and I don't know what to make of them. I'm not trying to speak as though I'm God here. I'm just trying to help us think through this and understand it. But did you notice in the story of the transfiguration that that a cloud came across them and covered the mountain? Well, I heard an early testimony of a student who talked about seeing a cloud over the town of Wilmore when the revival began on that Wednesday, a little more than a week ago. I thought that's very interesting because that's what happened at Sinai, a cloud. That's what happened here in the story of the Transfiguration. That student also said it had been a windy day. Well, I'm not real fond of windy days, whether it's summer or winter. I just have never really enjoyed those. But I do know that the Bible talks about wind and uses language that connects the wind with the Holy Spirit. And I couldn't help but think a cloud's covering the city and it's a windy day. And all of a sudden, we see a spiritual awakening, a revival taking place on the campus of Asbury University. And I went, wow, this is something else, isn't it? Well, I've continued to watch what's gone on. I've tried to, to find the people who are talking about it that, that have wisdom and can tell us the, the truth, the story that's really going on. And, and, and I saw a blog post by the man who's the president of Asbury Seminary, I believe. I think that's right. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm beginning to doubt myself, but he's right there in Asbury, or at Asbury, and he talks about the, the chapel service, and, and he talks about how it's God's grace that he would reveal himself to a new generation, maybe at the time that we needed it most. And you know what, there's been a lot of talk about this, and, and he wisely says it's better to stand in awe of something than to talk about something. I thought that was pretty good wisdom, that we need to be in awe of what God is doing, not talk it to death or not try to over-explain it. Maybe we just need to, to stand back and be in awe of the presence of God. He describes that when he went over to the chapel and, and sat in there, and he'd been there a number of times, both during the day and in the evenings, and he talks about it felt like stepping into a flowing spiritual river. And I've often used the expression, getting in the stream of grace, and I immediately thought, wow, that, that's remarkable. That, that's exactly what we need, is a river, a spiritual river flowing through. And he also talked about how that it wasn't the time to manage or shape what was going on. It's the time to receive from God, whatever God wants us to receive. And I think that's pretty good counsel. We need to receive. Now, you're probably not. You, some of you may be in Wilmore, Kentucky. You might be thinking about going. That's fine if you want to go, if you're there. But most of us are not there and probably won't go. But we can still receive what God has for us wherever we are because God is not limited by time or space. And his wise words are that we should simply receive what God wants to give. Would you be willing to give God permission 
to give you what he wants to give you? Would you receive what he wants to give you? Maybe it won't be what you think, but would you receive the gift of God? Well, that's good counsel. He goes on to talk about what the what are the marks are of an authentic revival. And and I find this very interesting. I've seen this more than one place that he he talks about these things and this seems to be what's happening in Asbury by by many many reports. But he says authentic revival comes out of people repenting of their sins, life change, people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Men and women finding reconciliation with God and with their neighbor. People capturing a renewed love for Jesus, the gospel, and the Holy Scriptures. Those are the kind of things that he says he sees happening there over and over. And it's a marvelous thing. People have talked about it, and he mentioned in his post, the, the peace that people feel when they go there. And, and how calm it is. Not characterized by a lot of overt emotionalism. It's marked as... Dr. Tennant says more by quiet weeping than emotive shouting. And, and he's the one that, that first said, as far as I remember seeing, that this may be an awakening more than a revival, we'll know later. But whatever it is, uh, I think we all agree we need to receive what God has for us. And we need to pray for those students, those men and women that are there, that, that God will accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in their lives and that he will bless them more than we could imagine because we want to support what God is doing in the lives of people around us. He also said something very interesting that I hadn't seen any place else, and again, there's so much being put out there that it's just too much to keep track of, for me anyway. But he said that they have not canceled classes and business as usual has gone on both at the university and the seminary. If you're familiar, there's Asbury University and Asbury Seminary. They're two different organizations. Roughly speaking, the one's on one side of the road and one's on the other side of the road. They're not enemies, they're friends, but they're just two distinct places. One's a seminary, one's a university. But he said they have not canceled things like work and study and all of the going to classes because they wanted people to recognize that renewal can become part of the fabric of our lives. It doesn't have to be something we put our lives on hold for. I thought that's very wise perspective and wise decision-making on the part of the leaders down there or up there, wherever you happen to be. And, and we're not really looking for memories you know, of, of some unusual things. We're really looking for a lasting touch of God on people. He also says something I thought was very, very interesting. He says, no one owns this awakening. You know, it doesn't belong to Asbury University or the people that are there. Not at all. He didn't look at it that way at all. This is something that God is doing, and we need to rejoice in it. And we need to be glad of what he will do in us, in them, in anybody. Well, there's another man. His name is Bill Elliff. I don't know Bill Elliff. I had never heard his name before. I came across his writings on this awakening or revival at Asbury. I think I made the connection with him through the work of another man that some of you may know, James Garlow. James Garlow is a retired pastor. He leads a ministry called Well-Versed and has actually had impact in government and among government leaders around the world. And he set up a, a whole page on his website. So if you go to Well-Versed, 
you will find that website. Actually, it's wellversedworld.org. And there's a link on that page, wellversedworld.org, James Garlow's website. You can learn about uh, Dr. Garlow, but you can also go there and click on the link for the latest updates from Asbury. And, and one of the people that, that James Garlow recommended was this gentleman, Bill Eliff. And so I've been reading his posts, and he has put out a number of them, and I, and I have heard much of what he said in other places. And so I thought maybe I'd just give you a quick look at some of what he said. You can go there and read that. I would encourage you to do that. Don't take what I say as the whole story. But he says, Bill, Bill Eliff says that, that God is very real. He's very present there. And several hundred had gathered there. Now, uh, sometime after he had written this, there, there are hundreds going there. Last I heard, there were three auditoriums open. Two auditoriums, one on the Asbury University campus where it started, one across the street at the, at the seminary, and one of the local churches had opened their doors for people to gather. And all three of those venues were full. I even heard one report, I didn't see the pictures, that they were setting up a screen outside so people who could not get in could see what was going on. It's a remarkable thing. It's interesting that this started among university students. They had a chapel on Wednesday. I believe that was Wednesday, February 8th. And it was a kind of a normal chapel. They have mandatory chapel. Students are expected to attend, and so they were there. But at the end, about 20 students stayed. They just felt compelled to stay. And the result has been the wind of the Spirit awakening people from all around the country. People from other colleges are going there, Bill says. He, he describes the, the worship experience as glorious and unified, not flashy, but just just sacred in a way that, that maybe we don't understand, typically. The altar is almost always full, he says. There are great prayer counselors helping people as they pray. There are wise leaders that are kind of shepherding the the experience as it goes on, making sure to keep things decent and in order. One of the things he said is it's not weird. You know, I've, I've heard some things about revivals, and, and some years ago there were some reports of revivals in different places around the United States and in Canada, and yet some of what I heard it just was a little odd. And and I, I have no reason to say that God was not there. That Don't hear me saying that. But in this case, he is saying that it's not weird. There are no unusual things happening. In fact, I read a report, it might have been in his stuff, I don't remember right now, but some people came to experience and be a part of what God is doing, and they brought large flags and a contingent of people, and um, they were asked to leave, to not stay in the meeting, because they didn't want to distract from the focus on Jesus. They had some people that came that they wanted to set up kind of their own group in a room there nearby, and they were asked to leave because the people that were shepherding this move of God did not want any distractions by that sort of thing. They wanted to keep the focus on on Jesus. And I think that's a lot of wisdom, but it's very encouraging to hear him say there's nothing weird going on. It's just God at work. We don't hear a lot of flashy stories about this. We may hear some amazing stories, but, but he says that healing is taking place, emotional healing, spiritual healing, even physical healing is taking place. And he said it wasn't long after he had been there, this is Bill Eliff again speaking, that he moved from a spectator to a humble participant. He was just drawn into that. But there wasn't any manipulation, nothing to 
pressure him to act a certain way. The scripture was read. People responded. People responded with the word of God and we believe it. And people were deeply moved. It's very interesting that people are talking about this in terms of the great awakening that took place some years ago in our country. And I think it's Bill Elif in one of his later reports talked about how 15% of the country at that time came to Jesus. 15% of the country. That's huge. We don't know if that's where this is going to end, but wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be just like God at a time when we need him? And so many of us have thought we really needed him. He comes and he, he draws people to himself in this remarkable way. He said, uh, I thought this was so good for us. He stayed there for a few days and then was checking out of his hotel room. And uh, the receptionist at the hotel said that they were sold out. They didn't have rooms at all. And she said, quote, we were not prepared for revival, end of quote. Well, I'm sure they weren't. But Bill ends this, this little reflection that he wrote by saying, may that not be true of us. May we be prepared for revival. And may God come and help us. Well, he continues with some of his reflections and, and observations. Yes, there have been some critics. He acknowledges that. I would acknowledge that too. But everything that I've seen points to the authenticity of what's going on. From the careful way it's handled to the worship that's been so respectful and not flashy, but just calling attention to the gospel and to Jesus, keeping the focus where it belongs. The testimonies have been urged or the people testifying have been urged to give testimonies that focus on God, that are brief, that are current, not to make statements or preach sermons or anything like that. And so they have been doing that. Yes, I understand there have been some sermons preached. If you're worried about that, I think that's a very positive sign. And I'm, I'm so glad to, to hear that, that the emphasis is on what does God say and what is he saying to us in this day, and we can turn to the Bible and hear someone talk to us about that. There have been times of corporate prayer he talks about, uh, people speaking with boldness about God, people being released from addictions, and past hurts and bitterness and fear, people being released from fear. Have we talked about that? Oh, yes, we did. Maybe God wants to release you from fear, even today, even now. Would you receive that release or do you want to live in that fear? May it be so. May God touch you in just the way you need it. Over and over, they point out to some of these things happening, the healings and the, the great things that God is doing in people's hearts. But, but over and over they say it's not the dominant theme. The dominant theme is Jesus and people focusing on him. And I thought that was so, so healthy and so encouraging. You may not be aware, but there is a connection between the 1970 revival, I think I mentioned that a little while ago, and the Jesus movement. Well, I didn't know that. I was in high school in 1970. I was aware of the Jesus movement a little bit because of the music that came out of it, and I was particularly interested in that in those days. But there's a connection that's coming up between that movement and this movement of God now, and I don't think we should miss making that connection. You may or may not be aware that there's a movie coming out called Jesus Revolution. It opens nationwide on the 24th of February, but really many places will have showings on the 22nd of February. That's not very far off. Remember, the Asbury Revival of 1970 is credited with beginning the Jesus movement, 
and the movie tells the story of that Jesus movement and what happened in a church in California and among some of the people that were greatly impacted by that movement. So, isn't it remarkable that God is moving in these days leading up to that national release? So, so here, put this together. On February 22nd, that movie will open in many places. I'm told it will open in our town, although the official date, I was told, is the 24th. So on February 22nd, the movie opens. On February 23rd, the next day, is the Collegiate National Day of Prayer broadcast. It's been scheduled for that date for over a year, and it has been scheduled to be broadcast from Asbury on February 23rd. Now, isn't that just like God to put something together like that? I thought that was so remarkable. So think about that. The movie opens on the 22nd in many cities around the country. Many people will see it that soon. The next day is the Collegiate National Day of Prayer, and this movement is being born out of university students. And that broadcast on February 23rd will take place from Asbury, from Wilmore, Kentucky. You know, we should give thanks to God and pray that he will use that broadcast and anything he can. Maybe even that movie. Wouldn't that be remarkable that something good would come out of Hollywood? That would, that would be the spark of a continued revival that would spread across this country. Wouldn't that be remarkable? Well, there's so much more that, that Bill has written and other people have written. I can't begin to, to give you all of it. But I do want you to know that everything that I've seen, and I've seen a few criticisms and and I respect the people that, that are asking important questions. I think they're wrong to, to kind of marginalize this. This is something that God is definitely doing of significance. It may or may not touch you and I in the same way, but it's definitely touching a generation of young men and women, and we need to pray for them and receive from God whatever he wants to give us. Let's not resist it. Let's receive it. So as we close, would you pray that God would allow you to receive a touch of that stream of grace that's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky? And we'll talk some more about that and rejoice in that next week. I'm Pastor Rick. Join me then.